The man stands only five foot, 10 inches tall. And I got to tell you, John Wooden, he was a giant in the world of basketball. If you don't know that name, uh, do me a favor, look him up, uh, get to know his story because his might just change yours. Uh, John Wooden was nicknamed, of course, the Wizard of Westwood, best known for his accomplishments at UCLA. Coached the basketball team, the men's basketball team, 1948 to 1975. Listen, listen to this. Over that course of time, UCLA won a record 10 consecutive national championships. No one does that today. That's a record that still stands. Uh, Wooden became the National Coach of the Year seven years running. So when you talk basketball, John Wooden, that name is rare air. So so what made him so successful? I've got to tell you, over the years, uh, Wooden, he passed away in 2010. Literally hundreds of books, articles, journals have tried to answer that question. Uh, his players, who, who included Abdul Jabbar and Bill uh, Walton, credit his no-nonsense approach. Uh, his focus on fundamentals, but I think there's more. Most would agree that if you could boil Wooden's recipe for success down to one word, the word would be character. Wooden had it in measure. Not not only did he have it, but he, he taught it to others. Uh, speaking, I'm going to speak personally. Uh, I've always said that one of the greatest Christmas presents I ever received in my life uh, was indirectly from John Wooden. It's in high school. Uh, when my father wrapped up a framed copy of uh, the coach's famous pyramid of success. He put it under the tree. I wasn't impressed when I opened it up, uh, but I tell you what, it really made a difference uh, in my life. The, the pyramid is made up of, I'll let you picture this in your mind, 15 foundational building blocks. Each block represents an aspect of personal integrity or character. Um, by the way, you, you can actually go online and still to this day take Wooden's Pyramid course. So the goal is to seek mastery over self in all, in all 15 of the foundational building blocks. They range from, from industriousness to team spirit to competitive greatness. Uh, none of them easy to achieve yet. So rewarding when you do. Today I'm going to invite you to uh, return with me. We're going to go back to the sixth chapter of Daniel where we're going to meet Daniel at an interesting point in his life. He's no longer young. In fact, most historians placed Daniel at about 80 years of age. He's being called out of retirement as a political transition begins to take place at the hands of the Persian king Cyrus, who's just defeated Babylon and is beginning to assume it into his, his kingdom. And, and part of what's going on is this question of succession. Who will Cyrus establish as the new governor over former Babylonia? We're going to watch Daniel enter the picture, uh, only to have his character tested. And if, if that were all there was, okay. But there's more going on here that meets the eye. Today, I, I want to get into the topic of something unseen, uh, something that I believe goes beyond our character, namely the presence of the Spirit within a person and its impact upon others. Uh, in a personal way, my hope is that in our time together, you, you can be challenged just to look at the way the Spirit is forming you uh, for the calling that He's prepared you for. Uh, in simple terms, my goal today is to look not only at character or the characteristics of what it means to follow Jesus, but into what lay beyond this.
I think one of the things that got me thinking about our topic today is a book uh, written by a hero of mine. His name is John Perkins. If you don't know that name, John became a spiritual leader during the Civil Rights Movement. Go, go back to the 1960s, a close associate of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So here's what I love about his story. There's a stark difference between his life message and that of a lot of leadership gurus in our, in our world today. And the difference attributes, it's not to, not to his base of knowledge or his successes, both of which he had in abundance. But I think what makes his story incredibly powerful is this intangible. So when you read him, you begin to sense the presence of something authentic, palpable, real. I call it the, the, the presence of the Spirit who, who calls and moves and shapes our lives takes us to places that lead us down paths I can guarantee we would never choose for ourselves, but that in the end actually define us. This is certainly the case with John Perkins on the night of February 7th, 1976, 30 p.m. John was in a van and returning to a college campus after a civil rights march when he was pulled over for no apparent reason. Everyone in the van ended up at Brandon County Jailhouse, talking uh, Brandon, Mississippi, once at the jailhouse, Perkins was arrested and the beatings began and continued with intensity through the night. Perkins, uh, when he tells the story, recalls the sheriff of the town calling him a, a, a smart word and then letting him know that he was in a whole new ball game. In fact, at one point in the early morning hours, things got so bad that one of his assailants took a fork, just picture this, a table fork, and jammed it so far up his nose it basically caused him to pass out. Now, I, w I want you to think about this and be honest. If that had been you, fal falsely charged uh, with a crime, beaten, almost almost unconscious by people who hated you, uh, how would you feel about your tormentors? So for me, words like rage, hatred, anger, revenge, th those are the words that pop into my mind. Are, are you with me? I mean, I realize Martin Luther King Jr. preached a nonviolent approach to change, but, you know, it's one thing to, to hear that in a sermon. It's another thing to actually experience it. I, I call it cruciform. It, it actually puts you on the cross, so to speak. So when Perkins talks about this, he says, as he laid on the, the floor of that jail cell, he couldn't see through his eyes, he couldn't open his mouth to speak. The Spirit spoke to him. You know, what, you know what words the Spirit gave him? Just two. Forgive them. You know what I'm thinking? Forgive them. You know, in our world today, that's probably not the first words that would come to most people's minds. In a situation like this, I think there would be words like, get this on video. Sue these people. It's going to be a criminal suit, a civil suit. Prosecute them. But that wasn't John. I want to share a prayer with you that John Perkins prayed as he laid on the floor that night. I'm going to quote it verbatim. So here it is. As you lie on the floor, coming in and out of consciousness, here's what he prayed. God, if you will let me get out of this jail alive, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal not only me, but these people too. On that jail cell floor, John loved, that's a strong term, but I'm going to use it because I think it's accurate. He loved the very ones who had almost beaten him to death. The Spirit put that love into John, and it changed the course of his life forever. I want you to think about this with me. What is it that from the moment in John Perkins' life forward made him 
so successful. It, it wasn't a set of leadership principles that he read in a book or procured through a seminar. It was not his ability to develop an exceptional business plan. It wasn't the accumulation of, of sourced data. It wasn't his charisma or charm. It, it wasn't even something that people might call character. I, I think what made Perkins, the man that he became, was the presence of the spirit within him. Simply put, there was an authenticity to him that drew people to God through him. I'm going to invite you to return with me to 539 BC. Babylon is in upheaval. The so-called unbreachable walls of Babylon have not only been breached, but they've fallen. And as Cyrus, the king of Persia, begins to assume power, taking Babylon into his kingdom, the question on the table for the now former Babylonians is, hey, what is going to happen to us? Will we all be killed? Well, no, that's not how Persia worked. Persia did not enter a territory and simply wipe out its inhabitants. It didn't. It, it assumed the residents into its own culture. So will we all be made slaves? In other words, was the ruler of Persia like Pharaoh of Egypt who, when he assumed a nation, enslaved its residents? Again, the answer is no. Persia operated differently than did Egypt. So here we are, November 539, and Cyrus is beginning to appoint his leaders. They called them satraps. These are regional leaders, think mayors, of which there would be 120 in this now new province of Persia. So who, who would become appointed to these positions? That, that, would, that would be of significant importance to the citizenry. Just follow me on this. In addition to the satraps, there would be appointed by Cyrus three higher officials, think governors, that would provide oversight over the whole of this part of Persia. They would be, so to speak, the king's right-hand leaders. Who they were mattered immensely to the king. So here, here's my question. Where does Daniel, or more appropriately, does Daniel fit into any of these appointments? I don't know about you, but my first instinct would be to answer the question, no. Think about it. When a new president steps into office here in the United States, what, what do they do? They clean house. Politicians expect it. Out with the old, in with the new. Why? So a new president wants people that are loyal to him or her. They want a known, not, not an unknown, in these positions of political clout. So, so when I think about the transition of power going on between Persia and Babylon in 539 BC, what I imagine is a complete sweeping of the house out with the former leaders of Babylon in with new people that have Persian names. Daniel, who's a retired 80 year old former advisor to the kings of Babylon, would not even hit the radar when it came to managing the traditions that we're observing. Yet he does. Did you notice? I'm going to read, uh, and I just want to read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, and I want to pray, Lord, that you give us insight through these words, and you can read along with me or just uh, listen. I'm reading through the ESV. Here, here's where the text takes us. It reads, it pleased Darius, Cyrus, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them, listen to this, three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom Daniel to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. 
So what, what stands out to you when you hear these words? For me, there's, there's two things that, that kind of jump off the page. First, the king of Persia knows Daniel. How? How does he know about a retired 80-year-old former political advisor? Second, he's calling him out of retirement. Not only does he know him, but what he knows about him causes him to bring Daniel forward for appointment. Cyrus of Persia is convinced that Daniel should, in fact, not only become a satrap, a mayor, but he desires to appoint him to literally the highest possible position. He's calling upon him to become the governor to whom all satraps, as well as the other regional leaders, would become accountable. So why, why would the king do this? If you're following me, I don't think you can read this scripture and not ask the grand question. What, what is it in Daniel that would cause a foreign king who, who can't know him all that well to appoint him, Daniel, a Judean foreigner, to the highest office in the province? You know where I think we find the answer to the question? It comes in the very next verse, verse 3. Let me read it. There it reads, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because, listen to these words, an excellent spirit was in him. I'll read that last line again. I think there's a lot to it. Because there was an excellent spirit in him. So what does that mean? It's kind of interesting. When you look at the Aramaic or Hebrew words for excellent, there's an excellent spirit within him. You're, you're going to find the adjective yatir used. The basic sense of this adjective is to modify a noun to indicate that whatever is being described, and in this case it's the spirit inside of Daniel, is preeminent. That is, it stands pre or before the other spirits. So think about what's happening. Throughout the narrative of Daniel, there's, there's no question that that is character is irreproachable. You can't survive as an advisor to a series of five kings apart from having a character against which no one can stand. But isn't there more going on? All who interact with Daniel, whether superficially or more intimately, notice you know, there's something more going on inside this guy. What they notice is described as spirit-led. And I think that's right. They recognize that the spirit that's leading Daniel is not like other spirits. And you know what? Daniel's not like other religious advisors. It's not motivated by things that most men are motivated by. It's not driven to please. It's not filled with fear about what others think about him. There's this calm confidence about him that caused him to be unflappable. He was truthful and fair. Not, not because he thought these attributes would bring him gain, but because there's a spirit at work within him. Both the Babylonian rulers as well as Persian leaders knew that he was a spirit-led servant, even, even if they didn't know the name of the spirit within him. Kind of brings me back to our topic today and, so, and some questions that I think are worth us thinking about. I'm going to ask you to allow me today to just set three questions in front of you for thought. It's my goal. It's just to take these words, release them to you. I want you to reflect on them personally. So here's question one. Who are the most spirit-led people that you know today? Now, notice what I'm not asking. I, I did not say to you who are the most religious people you know. I didn't ask you who are the most church-going people you know. I asked you to identify in your life 
those people who would, without any question, be identified as spirit-led? Who are they? It's question one. Question two. What makes you think that? What makes you think these individuals are spirit-led? What, what are the, the giveaways that tell you? How do these giveaways move beyond leadership qualities or character? Bottom line, what is it that makes a person spirit-led? Question three. And I say the toughest one for last. I typically do, right? Do you think of yourself as being spirit-led? By the way, I don't want you to answer that quickly. I want you to think about this. Here's some things that might help you as you do. Just ask yourself these questions. Do, do I feel like I really hear the spirit in my life today, regularly, like on an ongoing basis? Am I often surprised at the places I'm led or the people that come into my life? Or oppositely, am I pretty much in control of my life? When having to make decisions or determine direction, do I turn to the spirit as a well-known voice, life partner? Or are my prayers in such times more mechanical? Here's why I'm asking you to take some time to think about this. I really, I really think that over my years in ministry, I've become convinced there's not a lot of people that are living in the spirit, that have spirit-led lives. I'm not saying that people aren't saved uh, or that they're lost and condemned. I'm, I'm just saying that there, there are more people that are seeking to live out their faith in a way that keeps the spirit in a box them living by the Spirit. We, we want God in our lives. We, we believe the gospel promise, but we're just not sure about releasing ourselves to the Spirit. I mean, wh where would he take us? What, what would he call us to do? And if, what if we don't like it? What if it's inconvenient? What if it's hard? And as a result, we're living lives, I think, that are sometimes a shadow of what they might be if the Spirit really were the wing underneath, the wind underneath the wings of all we are and do. You know, the title of this podcast is God Size Living. I really believe something. I believe Daniel represents it well. He didn't try to fit into the culture God placed him in. He didn't try to win friends and influence people. He didn't seek upward movement in the hierarchy of governance. But he ends up being selected by the king of Persia to lead the entire nation. Why? Because he listened to the voice of one. He listened to the spirit who directed his steps. That's my hope for you. That more and more, You'll come to know the Spirit, not, not as a subject of a book or a sermon or a podcast, but as the one God has placed inside of you to strengthen you, to lead you. Where will he take you? I don't know. Will it be scary? Probably, at times. Will it lead you to uncomfortable places? Absolutely. Will it require you to give up control? Indeed. And yet there's no greater way to live than fully into the Spirit. I think that's the essence of God-sized living. Well, that's it for today. I'm glad you joined me. Uh, I'm also glad for your prayers. I'm going to ask you to continue to pray for me. I'm committed to pray for you and your family as well. Next week, we're going to jump a bit further into chapter six. I want to look together at how to deal with those who we know will threaten our resolve to live in the spirit. Till then, I pray that all of you will have a God-sized week. Mm -hmm.